0: Welcome to the Focus on Agriculture podcast, where we address topics relevant to today's consumers and farmers. I'm Preston Schrader.
1: And I'm Jason Carr. Preston and I are Technology Development Reps, or TDRs, for Bear Crop Science. As TDRs, our primary mission is to help solve agronomic challenges that farmers face and to understand how to best utilize the Bear suite of products, including traits, genetics, crop protection, as well as digital tools, to create solutions that are tailored to each grower's unique farm.
0: We have a couple goals with this podcast, the first being to help farmers across the country to address challenges that they face throughout the growing season while introducing them to game-changing technology that has the potential to radically benefit their farming practices. We also want to provide the consumers of ag commodities who are not necessarily involved in agriculture with information about the practices farmers engage in and the reasons behind them to hopefully provide a greater level of understanding and comfort with how their food is produced.
1: Today's guest is Dr. Stuart Smythe. Dr. Smythe is an associate professor in the Department of Agricultural and Resource Economics and holds the industry-funded research chair in Agri-Food Innovation at the University of Saskatchewan. Dr. Smythe's research focuses on innovation in agriculture and the resulting impacts.
0: Uh, Stuart, would you go ahead and tell us a little bit about your background, your education, and your current role?
1: Sure. I grew up on a on a small farm in
2: southeast Saskatchewan. We had a a section of land and a 125-head cow-calf operation. And when I finished high school in the early to mid-'80s, interest rates were 20% or better, and and ultimately agriculture, uh, hands-on agriculture and farming, didn't end up being part of my future. But I made my way to university and eventually got a a Ph.D. And and, uh, most of my research focuses on surveying and working with farmers, trying to quantify some of the benefits of uh, recent innovations in agriculture, particularly genetically modified crops and how they've changed land use requirements and crop rotations. And, and most of my research focuses o- a- around that area, and I hold a, an, industry re- an industrial research chair at the University of Saskatchewan and have, uh, have held that position for six years now.
1: I think a lot of us in the ag industry kind of have a similar story where we grew up in a farming background or a rural background. It didn't work out that we could necessarily be full-time farmers, but um, we all kind of, a lot of us wanted to stay around that space. And that's where we ended up where we are.
2: Yeah, exactly. I'm, when I talk to farmers, they're interested in the research I'm doing, and, and probably one of the best things of my job is, is I do a bit of teaching, and, and probably 80 to 90% of the students in my classrooms are, are farm kids, and, and a lot of them are planning to go back to farming. So it, it, it's a lot of fun to be able to just, you know, I don't get my hands dirty, but I, I'm, I'm still involved in talking to people in agriculture, and, and that's one of the best things about this job.
1: Yeah, I think we fully agree. We definitely enjoy being able to go speak with farmers and and get a feel for the things they're facing and try to help them with some of the things. It's a it's a great place to be in. Um, I think a lot yeah. of us. Oh, sorry, go ahead.
2: I was just gonna say, I was just gonna add that young adults in agriculture are incredibly passionate about the industry and and realize you know growing up with social media and a, and, a, and a lot of the the tools and understanding the technologies. Um, better than, than certainly my generation grew up with uh, it, it's just amazing to to see how how committed they are to to getting involved in in communicating and talking about the the benefits of of agriculture and farming as as much as they can
1: i agree so uh you're an ag economist and a lot of us uh you know maybe here an economist, and we think they would be involved in what you know the broad macro economy is doing. You know we talk about the g d p and and numbers like that, but that's really not the whole big picture of what an economist might do. so can you talk a little bit about what you do and how that fits into being an economist
2: yeah sure absolutely so so you're right a a lot of people you know when if you're watching the news and they're talking about interest rates or or what inflation is going to do they, they talk to an economist and, and you're right they talk about those very macro level things most of my research focuses I guess maybe you could phrase it as looking at innovation what facilitates innovation how do we measure innovation how do we quantify the the results of innovation how do we reduce the uncertainty around innovation and that's where I've tried to uh, set up a a fairly focused research program that that looks at the the role that regulations have on innovation so how can governments through policy changes encourage innovation um, through through say subsidized research grants or how can they facilitate or, or sorry not facilitate but how can they stifle research through through other policies such as over regulation of genetically modified crops um, and, and then I guess the, the one other component that I try to do a lot of research on is, is the sustainability of, of modern agriculture and the, the contribution that genetically modified crops have, have made and working, surveying farmers to, to gather that, that data and work to, to publish that in relevant
0: journals.
1: I've looked through a few of your recent publications and there's a lot of interesting information in there. And I'm looking forward to getting into that just a little bit throughout this interview.
0: Yeah, Stuart, you mentioned GMOs. Um, If you were to ask a consumer at a grocery store, if a GMO is good or bad, they would probably respond eight out of 10 times. They're not good. They're not healthy. Uh, But if you ask that same consumer, what actually is a GMO, what does GMO stand for typically, they have no idea uh, what that means or what it is. So I guess for the audience and those listening, if, the, if there's someone who doesn't know what a GMO is, can you describe what a GMO is?
2: It, sure. It, <laughs> I guess my definition, <laughs> I don't have a lot of genetics background in, in my, my um, university classes, but probably the easiest way to, to describe that. Um, where a genetically modified organism stands out is that variety developers have taken a gene from from one species and introduced it into an, another species to create an advantage for that plant and it, and the, the best advantage or example of this is is how the the gene from a soil bacteria is used to, to create uh, insecticides that are sprayed on on crops and researchers took that the, the the gene of importance for insect resistance and put it into, started with corn, it's gone into cotton um, and and it's made the, the plants considerably more resistant to insect damage and it's uh, resulted in a, a significant drop in, in chemical applications uh, of, of insecticides.
1: It's interesting.
2: So yeah, basically it's it's taking a gene from one species and putting it into a, another species um, to, to give that uh, new species an advantage over other varieties.
1: And it's interesting, I, I remember a couple of years ago reading that they uh, some researchers found that uh, this actually occurred naturally in sweet potatoes and leading to the sweet potatoes that we have today. And I just recently read some research and I don't remember the exact number, but they thought maybe 1 in 20 of the crops that we, uh, maybe the number was even higher of the crops that we typically consume are what we could call a natural GMO through that exact same process uh, that's done in the lab. I think we're just sort of on the cusp of an explosion
2: in understanding about the natural processes of of genetic modification. Most of the plant genomes are, are, have been sequenced or are in the processes of of being, you know, that being completed, wheat's genome was just sequenced last year for the first time. So, as those genomes are sequenced, plant breeders are are and geneticists are learning more and more about what's changed in the last years and decades of these plant genomes, and and for centuries too, and and can start to see how th- these plants have naturally been genetically modified to to account for changes in weather patterns we've had periods of drought we've had periods of excessive moisture we've had insects patterns of, of pressure so so the fact that we still have all of these plants growing in our production areas demonstrate that that these plants have been naturally modified over time so so I I think it's it's really exciting to see that that they're now able to, to document how plants um, sort of pick up these traits on their own.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah, what about uh, another uh, word that gets thrown around a lot is genetic editing, genome editing. Could you describe the delineation between genetic editing and genetically modified organisms? So the main
2: differentiation there is that uh, with a GMO, they're taking a a gene from one variety and, and putting it in another one. Gene editing is really an evolution of of the chemical and radiation mutagenesis that that dates back to first use in the 1930s and 40s so in those instances they would would expose it to the seeds to chemical or radiation and and you know changing upwards of 30 40 000 genes at a a single time and and now with gene editing they're able to specifically target uh, a gene or or a handful of genes and control how that gene is either upregulated or downregulated very precisely. So it it's a much more refined method of a refined and controlled method of of developing new plant varieties.
1: Yeah, the um, mutagenesis approach was definitely uh, kind of a not very targeted, and this gene editing is a much more targeted approach, looking at specific things as you mentioned, and it's it's really a big improvement on the techniques that were used in the past. And commonly accepted as um, being acceptable, basically.
2: Yeah, and that was that was one of the things that always struck me is that I mean the organic seed industry has used mutagenesis for the development of of their varieties for decades, and and the organic industry is is hugely in support of chemical and radiation mutagenesis. Yet you move to something that's more targeted and controlled, and, and suddenly they're opposed to it.
1: I always question a little bit, too, it, along that line, the, the kind of the same line of reasoning, um, the common use of Bt as a, uh organic insecticide, yet you take a protein from that common insecticide and put it in a plant, and suddenly it becomes scary or harmful for some reason.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, yeah, that that leads to, you know, there's been several or not several studies but there's been quite a bit of research that looks at the you know the amount of science knowledge that that adults get through the course of elementary and high school compare that to a lifetime of information and 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 that science knowledge becomes simply a drop in the bucket over over time right and and so people with without that knowledge they they turn to their friends and trusted sources for information and And unfortunately, some of those trusted sources of information aren't known for reliable and accurate information either.
1: Yeah, so that kind of leads into the next question that we have here, which is there's obviously, in some cases, a lack of uh, scientific knowledge, I guess. And then there's a lot of emotion that goes into the issue, too. And there's clearly, you know, on, on both sides of the issue, I guess, there's plenty of resources behind trying to get the message out. But if we take all emotion out of it and we take all the marketing out of it, consistent evidence over years of research shows that GMOs pose no risk to human health. So can you talk a little bit about that research and and what we know about the, um, the lack of risk, I guess, when it comes to GMOs? I think one of the things that the public doesn't have a clear
2: understanding of is is how new food products are regulated by governments and the the safety assessments that these products have to go through. So... um what happened in the in the late 80s and the early 1990s was that the organization for economic cooperation and development that's headquartered in paris brought hundreds of scientists together over a four or five year period and and they went through the entire risk assessment process around plants to understand the science uh, behind these new varieties that were genetically modified and then they developed a a global risk assessment for genetically modified crops that look at allergenicity. you know is it is it going to be an increased allergen for humans is it toxic to humans or or livestock does it have impacts on non-target organisms so um, does it affect um, butterflies or ladybugs um, you know if birds eat it, does it af- affect birds and, and mice and those things? So all of this research w- was done prior to the commercialization of any GM crop. And so that's why we've got this incredibly rigorous science-based global risk assessment system that, that's that been in place for, for 25 years. And ISA does the global assessments of, of GM crops on an annual basis, and the report that they put out um, for 2018 indicated that, that over 4,000 risk assessments have been done by the countries that have approved GM crops around the world and there hasn't been a, a single risk for, for humans or livestock or the environment um, identified that would be any different than, than any conventional crop variety that's released.
1: So, Stuart, as, as science progresses, it's not always a linear progression, and um, we get a lot of evidence that, that is safe, but, you know, we might find a study here and there that maybe at first glance it appears that there is a risk, or, or maybe in some case, you know, potentially there is a, a realistic risk, and can, what do we do then? Can you speak about that just a little bit?
2: Yeah, that, that's a great question because you're right. In the in the 25 year history of GM crops, there there have been some items pop up that, as you say, sort of the first time that the article gets published, it looks like this is a is a significant concern. And so so what's happened over the over this 25 year period is as these um, studies get published, other scientists step in. They they try to reproduce that data. They um, applied in different circumstances and a good example of that was in 1999 there was a, a paper published that said the pollen from BT corn can have a negative impact on monarch butterflies and so a lot of reef corn researchers got together um, grants were provided over the next two years and they they did a huge assessment of corn um, Milkweed that the monarch butterflies lay their their eggs on, and and they did the assessments and they actually published a special issue of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science that that responded to this first article and 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 ultimately they found that um, the first paper was a a study that was done just in a, a in a laboratory and when they they started to do the, the studies in the fields and assess what was going on in the natural environment, the results were far different. And, and that has sort of played out in a lot of instances where a study can be undertaken in a lab where the researchers try their best to reproduce the natural environment. But ultimately, nature is a, a pretty tricky thing to, to estimate or try to control or or, or, or you know, understand to to the best of our abilities and so when researchers start to use studies that are done in field conditions the results are far different from what they initially turned out to be in a in a lab setting and so so science is constantly trying to to ensure that they're they've minimized the risks as as much as are as is possible in in any of the the genetically modified crops that have been released to date and it, it it's not the case where well, we put it out, we can sit back. We don't have to worry anymore. Um, scientists and researchers are constantly looking for for new data to ensure that these products are as safe as they possibly can be.
1: Yeah, so there's an interesting parallel there. I, I, uh, I'm a beekeeper and I you know really am fascinated by bees. And there's a lot of, has been a lot of talks about neonicotinoid insecticides. And, um, you know, clearly they're very toxic to bees when you take them in a lab and you feed them to them directly and, um, you know, you get a lot of mortality. But the studies that have been done in the real world, where they look at real world exposure levels, um, that hasn't lined up with those, uh, you know, high mortality rates.
2: Exactly. Yeah, that's another excellent example where, you know, the the studies in the lab showed one thing, but... When the researchers get out into the field, you're right, nature just changes the parameters so much that that the impact is is minimal if they're able to detect anything at all.
1: And unfortunately sometimes the um, damage is done at that point, so to speak, because uh, that first bit of research is out there, which is, you know, uh, researchers publish what they find and that's how it should be, but um, we need to look at the whole body of work rather than just one little uh, publication.
2: Yeah, and I, you know, I think that's where a lot of the mainstream media really lacks a lot of science integrity. They're more than happy to to publish the, you know, eggs harming butterflies or eggs harming bees, but they never come back two years or a year and a half later to to public, to verify, um, and and you know, run that same the the science accurate story through the media the same way they did the 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 uh, fear story, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly.
0: (laughs) Definitely. So to narrow down to human health benefits, you recently uh, wrote a letter that was published in the plant biotechnology journal, I believe, uh, where you talked about uh, some of the human health benefits associated with GM crops. Can you take a minute to talk about some of those benefits?
2: Sure. Yeah, I'd be glad to. I I, I think those you know, the human health benefits are, are some of the, the, the least communicated, yet, from my perspective, the the most important of the benefits from GM crops that, to some extent, were were quite unexpected. Um, a couple of the, the key ones is that um, with BT cotton production in India and China uh, being so labor-intensive, most of the the insecticide applications were were done by kids wearing backpack sprayers walking through through cotton fields and so there was no ability to wash insecticide residues off and and it was estimated that up to, to 50 million cases of pesticide uh, poisoning a year have been reduced because of the the switch to uh, Bt cotton and and reducing the number of pesticide applications from you know 20 to 25 per year down to to less than 5 so um, it, over the 15 years that Bt cotton's been approved in India and China um, it was we asked you know the the research has, has said that you know a hundred million cases of pesticide poisoning have have been reduced and, and uh, the one that that sort of correlates with that is the the significant improvement in in mental health of farmers uh, farming like like any business is is stressful and the increased yields have resulted in higher profitability for farmers and and that removes some of the stress of, of financial burdens that that accompany farming and and the research uh, out of India uh, found that with bt cotton there was a you know an estimated reduction of about 75,000 or it's not a reduction but a prevention of about 75,000 cases of suicide in in cotton farmers in India over the past 15 years so so I think those are the you know the mental health and the and and Physical health benefits are are just absolutely incredible, and so when you hear um, anti ag activists and environmental groups saying that you know there's no benefits to GM crops, uh, you
1: know right away they're lying, and and uh, because there's just
2: significant benefits from the
1: technology. Well, fortunately or unfortunately, here in North America, we're pretty far removed from those situations like you. kind of talked about there about you know kids out there in the field spraying deadly pesticides and and all the everything that goes along with that it's pretty easy probably for us to sit in our nice houses and look uh I guess find a problem (laughs) where one doesn't really exist or or have something to worry about when it comes to well I'm going to look for uh, my food with a butterfly on it, or whatever non-GMO things, or you know, without looking at, or, or even we're not exposed to the to the real truth and the real depth of of what goes on, especially in other places.
2: No, that's right. It, but I, I, I well, there hasn't been any research done in North America. But I, I think that the, you know, the farmers do um, demonstrate that. Profit, uh, profitability has increased with GM canola, corn, soybeans, um, cotton here. So I do think that while nobody's sort of studied the, the mental health benefits of the technology in North America, I'd be hard-pressed to believe that it hasn't had a, a substantial impact on improving the, the mental health of farmers that get stressed in, uh, about financial hardships.
1: Well, farmers clearly have voluntarily adopted this technology. I mean, it's not—it's not as if there aren't other options out there. So, there clearly are some kind yeah. of benefits for the for the farmers. It it doesn't take a good deal of of logic to figure that out. I don't think.
2: Well, exactly. I mean, herbicide tolerant seed is just like any other technology that that a farmer is going to use in in their operations, and and we've seen a lot of examples over over time where they bought an equipment or technology and it hasn't worked for for their operation and so you know they sell it or they they stop using that technology um, the benefits have to be there for continued use and and you know farmers have been growing gm corn canola soy in North, in in both these countries since um, the mid-1990s, and, and you're right, to continue that adoption, there have to be significant and, and ongoing benefits for farmers.
0: Yeah, just a tangent, I, I don't know if your research covered this or not, but I mean, the numbers you threw out about India and China are mind-blowing. Uh, to wrap my head around, is that is access to that GM technology widespread in areas like India and China, or is it um, Mainly used by like the upper echelon, or is it available across social strata?
2: that was actually one of the, the concerns raised by a lot of the environmental groups about twenty years ago. They said it was only GM crops only benefited the big farmers in in Canada, and the states and Argentina and Australian stuff, and so other economists have have delved into the research and and done a lot of surveying and, and research in in India and China and. And one of the interesting ones that, that stands out for me is they surveyed households defined by the Food and Agriculture Organization as, as households of extreme poverty. So these are were households that live on less than $2, $2 a day. They found that those uh, farm households that adopted BT cotton had their household in, annual household incre- income increased by, I think it was about 135%. So so that's a, a massive um you know you go from $2 a day up to you know what would that be uh 4 450 a day kind of thing right a 135% increase so
1: that's very significant so,
2: yeah so so what the research showed is that the large industrial farmers yeah they had a increase in, in profitability and, and the benefits, but by far the, the highest percentage of benefits accrue to the, to the smaller, um, more subsistence, uh, farmers adopting the technologies.
0: Wow. That's amazing. Are though is there resistance in those markets with the more subsistence type farmers or is most of that resistance coming in developed nations like maybe the Americas or Canada?
2: Uh, no, it's pretty much uniformly global in in uh, opposition. Ghana, I was just seeing today that um, Ghana's on the verge of of approving BT cowpeas as as Nigeria has done, and and there's been a tremendous campaign by environmental groups there, putting ads in newspapers saying that if man eat um, BT cow peas, they'll become sterile, and and there's a whole list of of lies and inaccuracies that, that you know, they're just trying to scare the public to pressure the politicians into rejecting um, BT cowpea as, as, as an option for increasing food security.
1: It's kind of ironic that uh, the the non-GMO or the organic groups, you know, organic and non-GMO kind of go hand in hand, which, you know, it seems that that GMO technology could actually be um, a piece of the puzzle for organic production, production, at least in my mind, where you could reduce the amount of uh, chemical applications that you're making. So what really, in your opinion, what are, what are the drivers, or uh, no, I guess I shouldn't ask your opinion. It's probably, you know, you've studied this. So what are the drivers behind the the public resistance to GMOs?
2: I, th- I think the public is actually very supportive of, of biotechnology. I, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people that have Come from urban backgrounds uh, here in my home, and, and when I travel as well, and and after talking to them for two or three minutes about reduced carbon emissions and reduced chemical uh, applications, they support the technology. But there's a definite market for environmental groups to mislead the public because they are corporate fundraising businesses that the sole reason they exist is to is to raise funds from from their members, and they use that funds to develop information campaigns and try to influence policy, particularly environmental policy or, or agriculture policy and and so if they start telling the truth about GM crops, the public is going to say, Well, you've been lying to us for twenty years about the safety of these products. What other parts of your environmental movement have you have you been lying to us about? And so I don't think the environmental movement will ever ever recognize that there's any type of benefit from biotechnology or genetically modified crops or gene editing because they'll lose the entire environmental argument that the public realizes and is going to be quite um, disgusted by by being treated that way and being lied to.
1: Yeah, that's it's it's interesting that um you know there's kind of a general mistrust of corporations at least in the United States. I assume there's some of the same sentiment in Canada where, you know, well, we don't trust this because it's coming from a big corporation that has a lot of money. But however, the messaging coming from these environmental groups or even industry sources of, you know, maybe organic uh food producers or whatever, there's a whole lot of money behind those groups also.
2: Yeah, exactly. You know, I find it really interesting is that the, the people that are, are critical of um, big big companies uh, are quite happy to shop at Walmart, or they'll tweet their outrage using their Apple phone. So <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> there, there's, there's a lot of hypocrisy in, in those comments from
0: activists. Perfect. So... The UN has an estimate that I think we're going to add about another billion people uh, to the overall world population in the next 20 years. I think that puts will put us at about 9 billion by 2042. So obviously, agriculture is going to have to continue to advance during that time to continue to produce enough food, um, especially as, as we develop uh, people's palates, <laughs> you know, people especially in developing countries, they start eating more meat. Uh, you have to produce grain to, to feed the cows, to provide that meat, etc. cetera. Uh, what do you see on the horizon that keeps you excited about the future of modern ag?
2: Well, one of the things that really excites me is some of the research that's come out in the last sort of six months about gene editing. Um, I saw I saw one reference and I, I just can't remember where it was, but they were saying that the cost to develop uh, or to apply to apply gene editing to a variety was down to 10 to $15. So where this is a huge advantage is for the, for the public research sector in a lot of developing countries, whether it's research being done at universities or their national agriculture research centers. They're able to then work with local crop varieties that, that farmers have been growing for decades. They understand how to grow and produce and store and consume those crops and so if they're they're able to put in you know traits like insect resistance or drought tolerance or improved yields that's going to have a i think <clears throat> the the biggest impact on on helping food insecure countries meet some of the challenges that that are going to be there you know, it's, it's not going to be Canada and the states and the other industrial countries that, that are struggling with, with the increase in population. It, it's going to be putting the technology in the hands of the, the, the farmers in, in developing countries where the population is increasing um, at a more rapid rate than it is anywhere else.
1: So on a personal note, is there any research that you're working on or publication that you're working on that's upcoming that we can look forward to seeing here in the near future?
2: Yeah, I'm hoping, or I'm not hoping. I, I will be rolling out a survey of, of farmers across across the prairies this summer. We want to get a better understanding as to how the removal of summer fallow from our crop rotations has has had an impact in in helping to mitigate climate change and trying to get a sense as to how much um, carbon is sequestered by the soil and and what the reduction in greenhouse gas emissions has been we've removed about 95% of our summer fallow acres here over the last 30 years.
1: Wow. That's great. I I know I enjoy, you said, following you and reading some of your publications from time to time. And how are others able to kind of read about what you do? Do you have a or you, you have a couple of ways that you share that information?
2: Yeah. So as part of my research chair, um, my chair is focused on sustainable agriculture, innovation, and food. So I have a a website set up, it's uh, www.saifood.ca. We publish informative blogs about all four of those aspects every week. We publish uh, blogs by students, we've got student blogs coming out this week. And you can also follow me on Twitter, and my handle on Twitter is uh, stuartsmyth66.
0: Great. Well, Stuart, uh, thank you for joining us today for the podcast. It's been a pleasure.
2: Yeah, well, thanks very much for reaching out. It was, it was fantastic talking to both of you.
1: The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.